Okay, good morning. Good morning, good morning. Good morning, there are sheets passing around if uh, anybody wants. There are copies. Um, we completed what we were studying previously, and so today we're going to do something new. It comes from a great sefer of Rav Elimelech Biederman, who's become a very popular, he's a Hasidic Shirov in Eretz Yisrael. He's become uh, very popular for good reason. He has fantastic stuff, and he has a sefer called Be'er HaChayim. On Pesach, on the Haggadah, and this is a chapter in his Sefer Be'er HaChayim. And uh, it's kind of short and sweet, and it's a good topic for us all year round. It's great for Amuna, but especially as we are in the preparation phase of uh, counting down with great anticipation and excitement for celebrating Pesach together. <laughs> so he says the following Anisim b'Mitzrayim alam dem al kach, that the miracles in Egypt taught us, Kedvar Hakdoshan Shalaramban. He's quoting these are the famous words of the Ramban at the very end of Parsha's bow. The Ramban says, The Ramban and the Ramam have a fundamental disagreement about whether we believe in miracles. Do we believe in miracles? And do we subscribe to miracles? And do we admire miracles? Do we crave miracles? For the Ramban, who's a great rationalist, there's no miracles, there's nature. And every seeming miracle has to be able to be explained through nature. And in fact, most can be, including even the splitting of the sea. I remember seeing a New York Times article from many decades ago where scientists said that if the moon were aligned and the earth was on this axis and angle and it was this season, it was this, this, and this, and the wind blew in the exact right direction and velocity, the water could appear like it was splitting or could pave a path of, of dry land. So Ki'ilu, every seeming miracle has to be able to be explained through nature because what there is is nature. Does that mean that God doesn't control nature? Of course, for the Rambam, God is nature. Nature is synonymous with God, but God designed and created a world where he doesn't stand out, where he doesn't explicitly reveal himself. And so when something looks like it's a miracle, it's not a miracle, it's unusual, it's uh, something that, that certainly stands out, but it's still God. The Ramban disagrees, and this is where the Ramban expresses it most emphatically. Here's at the end of Parsha's bow, when he says that the great miracles that we experienced were so that we would know that just as God did ten plagues, and just as God split the sea, and just as God spoke to us at Harsinai, so too, when you turned your car on this morning and it worked, it's a miracle. So too, when you opened your eyes and you could see, that was a miracle. It's the exact polar opposite of the Rambam. For the Rambam, everything's nature. We live in the natural world. God created a world. He pressed start. And he set that world in motion. And we operate and live within that world. And our mission in that world is to find God despite his being hidden behind the curtain of nature. The Ramban says the exact opposite. The Ramban says, One has no chilek betoras Moshe Rabbeinu. You're not a, when I say observant Jew, I don't mean ritually observant, but I mean faith. You don't have a proper faith as a Jew until you believe with every ounce of your being that these miracles ain't by him teva. There's no nature. These are not part of a natural order. They can't be explained through nature. Whether it's true for the masses, the Six-Day War, the miracle of the Six-Day War that defies all military understanding, or biyachad, the miracles that we go through, where somebody thinks that something's going to happen, they're on a trajectory in a certain direction, and miraculously it changes trajectory, miraculously they get good news, something works out that never should have worked out, 
So the Ramban says, when you do God's will, we are rewarded and we violate and neglect God's will. There are consequences. And everything that happens to us in life, nothing is natural, nothing is random. It's all the guiding hand of Hashem. So for the Rambam, God pressed play and He deposited us in a natural world and we are subject to the rules of nature. Just like if I let go of my phone, gravity will make it fall to the ground, so too we're subject to the laws of nature. And if we want God to intervene and to interfere with nature, if we want God to manipulate His own laws of nature that He set in motion, then we need to be worthy, we need to earn it. The Rambam believes that emuna bitachon work proportionally. The more bitachon, the more hashkacha. The more you believe in God, the more God intervenes. And there's nothing surprising about that philosophy because it's exactly what we employ to a certain degree with the people around us. If we offer to help and people say, ah, you can't help and you're nothing and they neglect our relationship and they stomp all over it and they never call us and they pretend we don't exist, we're not going to intervene and come to the rescue. And the people who reach out to us and have a relationship with us and believe in us and invest in in us, we're going to do everything that we can to help them. So the Ramah says, the more faith someone has in God is the more hashkacha, the more providence from God that they merit to receive. But the Ramban says no. There's no relationship. There's no proportionality. It's simply the whole world is the hand of Hashem. There's no such thing as nature. Every time you drop your phone and gravity pulls it to the ground, don't think that there's something like gravity. That's the mistake of Stephen Hawking. Don't be a student of Stephen Hawking in this sense. He's a great physicist. He overcame all kinds of obstacles and odds. He should be a great source of admiration as a person who had enormous disability and yet used his ability instead of his disability. But he came to the wrong conclusion about God that one can, so to say, forgive him for, and many people have, despite his genius. What I think he can't be forgiven for is coming to the wrong conclusion about Israel, for which he worked for boycott, divestment, and sanctions. He was a proponent of BDS, and he was really anti-Israel, and being anti-Israel and BDS is a form, a pernicious form of anti-Semitism, and that, to me, there's no forgiveness for. But anyway, so, so he worshipped at the altar of physics and metaphysics, and he said every time you drop something, it's gravity that makes it fall. The Ramban says gravity. Gravity is just another name for God. If God wants it to stay, it'll stay. If God wants when you let go for it to rise, it'll rise. He happens to let it fall, and that's what we've come to expect. But for the Ramban, the only difference between the natural and the supernatural is our expectation of it. So we believe in gravity because we've just seen and tested that hypothesis so many times that when you let go of something, there's a gravitational pull that pulls it towards the earth. So you conclude it must be gravity. But, says the Ramban, to be a God-fearing Jew... To be living as an earnest, sincere, faithful Jew, you have to believe that in fact, it's not gravity. Nature, you know, it's a windy day outside. Yesterday was windy. So for the Rambam, 6,000 years ago, 5,778 years ago, God set in motion a world. And there are, I don't even exactly understand it. I don't even, not exactly understand it. But there's an ecological system and there's a waves, and there's whatever. I don't know how wind is produced. That would be an interesting thing to Google. There's wind. So the natural world, anyone here know how wind happens? The natural world that God set in motion produced the wind today. 5,778 years ago, he designed a world. He had a program. He pressed start, and the program that's in the world yields the wind that's blowing outside right now. That's the Rambam's understanding. Nature. Does that mean God doesn't? Of course, God invented nature, controls nature, can choose to manipulate and interfere with nature. But all else being equal, he pressed play, and nature goes. But the Ramban, no. Every gust of wind 
is the direct will of Hashem. That's not wind. That's Hashem giving you a hug, blowing you a kiss. That's not a gust of wind. Every branch that falls, every leaf, every, everything, every traffic light that, that you got stopped at or that you made because you were running late, it's all, there's nothing natural or coincidental. It's all Hashem. Okay? So explaining the Ramban comes along the Maharal. And the Maharal says the following. The Gerebbe, the Chidush Arim, the first Gerebbe, would review this insight of the Maharal over and over and over again, just to tell us, just telling us how, how significant it is. Just like there's a natural order, so too there's an order to miracles. That's the Maharal's insight. Just like there's a Seder for Teva, there are rules and there's an order and there are natural laws. So too there are rules and there's order and there's laws that determine miracles. What do you mean? A miracle is exactly the opposite. What does the Maharal mean? Nature is about rules and formulas and predictability. Supernatural is about violating those rules. Supernatural is about suspending those rules. Supernatural is about breaking through the boundaries that limit you to those rules. So what does it mean to say that miracles also have rules? The whole idea of miracles is that you transcend the world of creation, the physical universe, and God is choosing to determine what He wants to do. What does it mean to even have Seder order to a miracle? What does it mean? What does it mean? God did an incredible um, kindness to us that He created the world with ten sayings. And He conducted the world in a, in a natural order and in a way which fits ni- nicely and neatly. Right? So the fact that God created a world with rules and predictability was a great act of chesed. If the world were completely random, you'd have no idea when is the, when is the um, plant, if you didn't have seasons, okay, I understand the irony of saying that in South Florida, <laughs> but if, if you didn't have seasons and you're a farmer, how would you know when to plant, when to plow, when to harvest, when to, you need the predictability of nature. <laughs> I'm not suggesting nature is entirely predictable. Just ask any hurricane forecaster or weatherman in New York who's, you know, about blizzards. But the rules of nature are predictable. If A, then B. If C, then D. So, so that's a chesed of Hashem. To know that if you let go of something and sometimes it fell and sometimes it rose up and sometimes it smacked you in the face, you would never know if you could let go of something. You couldn't live. So the rules of nature are actually a tremendous chesed. So we know that the day is for working and the night time. What if you didn't know? You went to sleep, but it could get light 10 minutes later. You start out in the, in the farm, in the field, you're about to go to work, all of a sudden it got dark. Now, if you had no idea when it would get dark, when it would get light, when it would be cold, when it would be hot, when it's time to plant, when it's time to harvest, the rules of nature are an incredible gift. Without the rules of nature, we literally couldn't survive. Sometimes you'd have to survive from the light of the sun, sometimes the light of the moon. 
And with every aspect of life, we need the predictability of nature. So therefore, Kaddish Baruch Hu, as an act of chesed, it was a great act of kindness, created boundaries, rules, and regulations for the world that give it a certain ability to predict, to anticipate, so that we can operate in it. If you couldn't predict, would you ever get up in an airplane? No, if you knew yeah. gravity's not going to work, it's not going to work, turbulence. <laughs> that, the notion that God created a world with a natural order, with predictability and formulas, was all true until Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. Until, from the moment of creation, until we were ready to be taken out of Egypt, the world operated exclusively according to the rules of nature. He created that chesed of called nature, and that was it. Nature itself guided the world. So what was the real gift of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim? Is that God then created something new in the universe. Says Rebbe Melech Biederman, what God changed in the world, it's like a new invention, a new creation that came out deep into when the world already existed. What God created in the world was that if we are willing to transcend our nature, then God will transcend His nature. His nature meaning the nature He created. If we can overcome our natural inclination, instinct, impulse, if we can exhibit our willingness to believe, not in the fatalism of nature, but to believe in a God who can interfere with nature, then God, in fact, will reciprocate in kind and go to extraordinary means and measures to do so. Just looking at these footnotes and deciding whether we're going to do them. A great yisod of emuna, lahamin shekoldavar ba'olam nasa ba'ashgacha pratos of etachlus adiktok. So, according to the Ramban, with that change, what does it mean to be a disciple of Moshe Rabbeinu? What it means to be loyal to Hashem is to believe that once that change happened, He took us out of Mitzrayim. Once that change happened, He gave us the Torah. That now, everything that happens, it, it's almost as if before Yitzias Mitzrayim, the Rambam was right, and after Yitzias Mitzrayim, the Ramban is right. Obviously, the Rambam has to describe also post Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. But for the way that Rebbe Biederman is describing it, it's almost as if before we left Egypt, we were subjects of nature, period, pure, plain and simple. If, God forbid, a person got a terrible diagnosis, an illness, it was a fluke of nature. They were the unlucky winner of that genetic lottery, that they won that disease. If a person had a blessing, they were highly fertile and they popped out children, which is actually what happened in Egypt, they were the lucky winner of, of uh, fertility. But there was nothing about God. God created a natural order. Part of the natural world is He created human beings, and the human beings are subjects and operate within nature. That was all true until we left Egypt. Says Rabbi Melech Biderman, based on this Ramban, once we left Egypt, the entire structure and dynamic of our relationship changed. The now, nothing in our lives is because of nature. And whatever happens, from the blessing, to the seeming hardship, to the challenge, to the obstacle, to the good, it's all, every moment of it is Yad Hashem. The Gemara says you reach into your pocket to pull out a nickel, and you out, pulled out a penny. So, you know, you had a bunch of change in your pocket. You just say it's randomness, it's just chance. Right? Do it X many times and you're going to figure out the statistics. So the Gemara says no. Whatever you pulled out, you were meant to pull out. 
If you pulled out the right thing on the first try, that was a shtickle reward. Hashem threw something your way that you didn't even notice, but it just made your life more efficient and convenient for a moment. And if you struggled in your pocket to pull out the right one, that also wasn't a coincidence. That too, Hashem needed you to be delayed. Hashem needed you to struggle for a moment. So post Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim, the major transformation, the transition that happened with leaving Egypt was an absolute di- a different relationship with Hashem. And you see this in the Pasuk. Today you're going out in the month of spring, in the springtime. Just as an aside, why do we observe Pesach in the spring? So most people will say, What did she say? So most people will say, thank you. That, that's when it happens. Right. So if you're going to get it right, you've got to do it accurately. It'd be weird to observe Hanukkah in the summer and, and Pesach in the winter. These are when it happened. We're commemorating historical events. So that's why we do it when we do it. So it could happen later. So why do we do it in the fall? So, so clearly it's not only because of historical events. So why are we doing it in the spring? They used to say that the, uh, the Koach of that month, at that time, oh. at that moment, that's exactly right. So I'll tell you something. This is so critically... I'm going to. This is so critically important to understand. You cannot understand the Jewish notion of time, let alone holidays, if you don't understand this concept. And, and it's a very, very simple but, but critically important concept to understand. In this, in, in, among Western thinkers, time is linear. Time is linear means that, let's say this point, this edge of the table represents the first moment of creation whether it was the Big Bang or whatever precipitated the Big Bang, we call God. And then it's a line that goes across the table to the other end of the table. And wherever we are in time is that point on the line. And the future line is the future. And the line that's been drawn behind us is the past. And we are the moving point on a linear timeline that's only moving forward. Right? That's a secular notion of time. The Jewish notion of time is not linear, it's cyclical. What is a cyclical notion of time? It's not a circle, if time were a circle, you would meet yourself now from last year, Pesach. Right? You don't run into ourselves every year. Time doesn't work as a circle. But time works as picture, not a circle, but a spiral. A spiral is following the exact same cycle and pattern, but it's advancing. So on the one hand, we're moving forward on the spiral, because time is progressing. But on the other hand, we are revisiting the exact same cycle over and over and over again. It's cyclical. Now, each cycle, each circle has points on that circle where God created a world where He embedded within points on that circle certain energy, certain opportunity, certain power within those times. I know Yechever would like this, energy. Certain, certain time, right? So when we encounter those points of time going through our cycle, what we're doing, why are we observing Pesach a week from this Friday night. Why are we observing Pesach? So if you wake in a child in the middle of the night and say, why are you keeping Pesach? They would say to you, you're keeping Pesach because thousands of years ago the Jews were in Egypt and we were freed and we are remembering and reliving and recounting that event. Why am I observing Hanukkah? Because the Jews were oppressed by the Hellenists and we were freed. Why am I observing Sukkot? Because we sat in the elements, we sat in the Sukkot. And that's entirely wrong. That is not why we observe these holidays. That's not why. Why are we observing these holidays? Because each holiday has a theme. And the historical event that's associated with the holiday happened 
because that day was imbued with that theme, with that energy that allowed that event to happen. So when that event happened on that day, it revealed to us the energy in the day. But the reason that we're observing the holiday is to ourselves tap into that energy, not simply to commemorate something. So look at the way that America commemorates things. July 4th is Independence Day. So what do we do to express our independence? We barbecue and make fireworks. Which, by the way, is true for every day on the secular calendar holiday. How do we commemorate everything about the past? Really nothing to do with the past. We just, I don't know, we don't really know how. Because we're, you can't commemorate, you can't commemorate something from 20 years ago, let alone 200 years ago, let alone 2,000 years ago, let alone 3,500 years ago. How do you experience that? So we are, and that's why it's, it's devolved into where they just make a barbecue and, and a sale and, and shoot fireworks in the air for all these holidays. So for us, each of these historical events, be it Sukkot, be it Shavuot, be it, be it Pesach, be it Hanukkah, be it Purim, be it your Hebrew birthday, be it your anniversary, the Hebrew one, is a point on the calendar which is meaningful which is auspicious, which carries energy. And the event that happened revealed that that was in that point in the calendar. So when we encounter it in our spiral, in our cycle, it's a new year. We've advanced in the spiral, but we're, we're tracking the exact same pattern, the same flight path. We're going on the same cycle, and we're encountering the same points of energy. So why are we observing Pesach a week from Friday night? Because we want to be free. We want to liberate ourselves. We want to tap into the energy of emancipation, of freedom, of liberty, of what that means, that Hashem is involved in our lives, the Chag Emuna. Why am I observing Sukkot? Because I want to leave my home, I want to leave my house, and take my home with me into a flimsy hut, and remind myself that the walls and the brick and the mortar are not what define me, it's the people and the experiences in it. And so I go outside and I make myself vulnerable to the elements because that day is imbued with that meaning. And why in Shavuos am I celebrating the giving of the Torah? Because that's a day that I re-accept the Torah. Shavuos, I'm not just commemorating, oh yeah, way back then we accepted the Torah. Shavuos, I'm re-accepting the Torah. Pesach, I'm re-experiencing freedom. Sukkot, I'm re-experiencing vulnerability. Hanukkah, I'm re-experiencing miracles. Purim, I'm re-experiencing finding Hashem even when He's hidden. And on my birthday... I'm re-experiencing that the God thought the world needed me to exist. Mm-hmm. Not in an ego way, but that I have a mission, I have a purpose, I'm here for a reason. If I live and survive another birthday, then that birthday obligates me and mandates me to say, why am I here and what is my mission and what is my cause? And if you're blessed and fortunate to celebrate an anniversary, and it should be the Hebrew one, then what are you commemorating? You're not just, it's not an anniversary Imagine your anniversary, you say, I don't really love you right now, I'm not getting you anything nice, I'm not experiencing anything nice, but let's watch the wedding video because historically, this was the day that we stood under the chuppah, so let's you know, historically walk down memory lane about our, our wedding, we'll watch the wedding video from way back when. No, of course not. Wedding anniversaries is, should be imbued with romance and love and connection and, and, and re-experiencing, not only re-experiencing, the fact that you've been on the spiral moving forward, you're hopefully experiencing it much more intensely than you ever did under the chuppah when you thought you were in love and you barely knew each other. So whether it's your Hebrew birthday, your Hebrew anniversary, or all these holidays, the reason that we encounter them, engage them, is not to commemorate a historical event of the past. But rather, and this also explains, what does it mean when Chazal tells us that the Avos, Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, observed the holidays Pesach most notably, when the angels come, and it's Pesach, and it's Gimchametz. What does it mean they observe the holidays? That's absurd. 
If Pesach commemorates our leaving Egypt, how could Avram have observed a holiday that commemorates something that didn't yet happen? That makes no sense. Makes no sense. So the simple understanding is, it didn't yet happen, but he was sympathetic with it in anticipation of it happening, so he commemorated it even before it happened. It doesn't make sense. But based on what I'm telling you, this is not my own opinion. This is many. The Maharal expresses it also very clearly. Is It makes a lot of sense. Avram wasn't observing Pesach, the experience of leaving Egypt. Avram was observing Pesach, the experience of freedom and liberty, the themes of what Pesach are about. That's what he was tapping into. We needed the historical event in order to pinpoint the day that has that value. But they were so attuned, their antenna was so sensitive, they were able to feel that day even without the historical event uncovering it, just because they knew it. And that's what he means here. When the Pasuk says, Hayom atem yotzim aviv, You're going out in the springtime. Rashi, they, they looked outside. They didn't know what, what season it was. They didn't know what month it was. Why is Moshe, Hashem through Moshe, telling them, you're going out today, it's the springtime. Look outside. Look at the chesed I've done for you. You're going outside. There's no snow on the ground. Nor is it the dead of summer in Boca, the heat beating you down. It's the springtime. It's the most beautiful time. And that's not a coincidence, Hashem is telling them. It's not a coincidence. It's not chance. It's not random. Everything about your life is by design. And the fact that I chose to take you out now and it's so comfortable is by design. So why? Why do we observe Pesach in the spring? And by the way, we observe Pesach in the spring. That's so important to observe Pesach in the spring that we manipulate the calendar to do so. So because we have a lunar calendar, not a solar calendar, and it's shorter, and therefore it ends up shifting, when Pesach gets too close to being too late, what do we do? Another month. Sorry, too early. What do we do? We have another month. Why do we have a leap month, a second Adar, to shift Pesach back into the spring where it belongs? Because, oh, well, it happened in the spring, so we really should observe it in the spring? No. The spring is what allowed it to happen. And therefore, the spring is what's going to allow us to happen. What is... No, no, it's the Ribbona Shalom. He imbued these days. We believe, I don't think it's measurable. I don't think there's an instrument to measure the energy of those days. He imbued those days with that meaning. So hold on. So the spring, the idea of the spring is, Chodesh Aviv. It's not a coincidence. You know, there's a bracha that you say, a birchas ha'ilanos. People don't know this. The Gemara quotes it, brought down in the Shulchan Aruch. We pass in halacha lamaisa. If you have a fruit tree, before the fruit emerges, there's a flower that comes out. And when that flower comes out before the fruit, there's a bracha that you say on that flower. It's called the birchas ha'ilanos, the bracha on a tree. And it's proper to make the bracha in Nisan. There's a whole discussion in halachic literature. If you forgot to and you missed Nisan and when in Nisan. But find a tree. The Sephardim always gather in Dr. Zaghi's backyard every year. But anyone's welcome. We have fruit trees. You know, you struggle right now if you're living in... Uh, Face uh, Manhattan for sure, but even the five towns in Tinek, in the blizzard out right now, you're going to struggle to make a birchas ha'ilanos. We have the, the privilege of making this bracha. What's the birchas ha'ilanos? Why are you making this bracha on the flower, the bud of the flower that precedes the fruit? Anticipation. You're making this bracha on the springtime. The ability to blossom, the ability to grow. You're coming out of the dead of winter. 
which again, we don't feel, but if you felt the dead of winter, you're coming out from being, you know, the cloak of darkness, the gray, the dreary, the short days, the snow on the ground. It's dead. People feel dead inside, dead outside. There's all kinds of research that correlates people's feelings with the weather and, and you know, what's happening outside. There's a lot more crime when it's really hot. There's a lot more creativity when it's really this. And there's a lot more depression when it's really that because the weather has a big impact. So what happens when the day becomes longer and all of a sudden the sky's bluer and now you're seeing the blossom. It's coming forth, the fruit of your effort, of your work. The winter is clearing and the spring is coming. Chodesh Aviv. Chodesh Aviv empowered, it drove Pesach and it empowers and it drives us. So all this is just a tangent, by the way, but that, it's not a coincidence. It's based on this Pesach. So that's what he's saying, Rebbe Biederman, is that why did Hashem throw in, look outside, it's the spring. They didn't know it was the spring because he said to them, the fact that I designed to take you out now is not a coinkinink. It's not a coincidence. It's by design. Everything is on purpose. That was the transformation that happened with Yitzhak Mitzrayim. Okay. According to what you're saying then, a Pesach is, is the spirit and the energy of redemption. Yes. So that means that every time Pesach comes, we could have the final redemption also. That That's not what I'm saying. That's what the Gemara says. Benisa nigalu, benisa nasida nigal. Chazal say we were redeemed in Nisan and we'll be redeemed again in Nisan. Absolutely. Because Nisan is pregnant with that possibility. It's pregnant with that meaning. Now here's the, here's the kicker though. This is the most important thing of everything I've just said in the last 10 minutes. most important thing is you have to tap into it. The fact that those energies are there, if you're caught up in the kazais of your mat, and I don't mean to minimize any of these things right now, but you know, you're cleaning the romaine lettuce and what the cost per pound of the matzah you bought was, and you're obsessing over the chametz, and you come to the seder, you come to the Pesach seder as a shmata energy, energy. I have no energy, this has no energy, the day has no energy, I hate Yantif, I hate Pesach, I have no bank account left, then, then, then Pesach does nothing for you. It's supposed to energize and invigorate, it's supposed to be a time to blossom and to grow, to spring forth in springtime, and, and if you come as a shmata and you obsess about the wrong things, you see the, the thing that was going around yesterday, the, the Chag Kasher V'Sameach, it shouldn't be so kosher that you have no simcha, and there shouldn't be such simcha that it's not kosher. That was the going around yesterday. So, so and Purim and Pesach, yeah. So um, the point is that you've got to tap into this. You have to be aware of this energy. You have to talk about what the theme of the day is, and you've got you to experience it. So don't come to the Seder and have your kids share gematrias and vartlach and pictures and story. That's all nice. Talk to them about what is freedom. Talk to them about their technology. And has the technology made them enslaved or has it provided freedom? And what is freedom? And how can we use this spring season to redefine ourselves and turn the page and enter a new chapter of our lives in our attitude towards that which enslaves us? Whether it's technology that enslaves us or town center mall enslaves us or chocolate cake enslaves us or working enslaves us or, or being, losing ourselves to anger and rage or jealousy and envy. Whatever it is that's enslaving us, whether it's character traits, whether it's objects, whether it's substances, this is the season that we are given that energy and that possibility to free ourselves, to liberate ourselves. But you gotta be aware of the you gotta be aware of this theme. You have to know what the energy of that day is, and you have to have the energy yourself to tap into it and to grow from it, to experience it. Otherwise, you miss the boat on what the holiday is all about. So if you come out of Pesach the other end, and you had a chag kosher and it was sameach, so your home was chametz free and everything was mahadrim and a mahadrim and a mahadrim. And, and it was besimcha too. You, you didn't have four glasses of wine at every meal. You had 20 glasses of wine and it was besimcha. But you had no idea. You didn't have one conversation about what freedom is. You didn't have one connection, one moment in davening about realizing 
what we're enslaved to and asking for help to get, to get free from it. You didn't think for one moment about what spring is or blossoming forth or the trees that produce the fruit and the first bud. Then you didn't really experience Pesach. Technically, you went through the calendar of Pesach. Technically, you went through the laws of Pesach. But Pesach didn't go through you. And that's what it's really here for, and that's what's really transformational about it. Says Biderman, they just came out of 210 years of slavery, persecution. It was a holocaust. People were murdered. Children were killed, were beaten. You really think they were worried about the weather? You know this councilman in New York who just accused Jews of controlling the weather? You following this story? I think he apologized yesterday. <coughs> So I saw a great, some non-Jewish woman on Twitter wrote a tweet. She says, I was once walking by a synagogue on a Saturday and they asked me if I was Jewish. And when I said no, they asked me if I could come in and adjust the thermostat because they're not allowed to. I don't think they control the weather. <laughs> so that's a great line. So that's what the Melech Biederman here is saying. <laughs> you think that the weather, that's what they were controlling? 210 years of... They, 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 were, they were liberated. They were in a concentration camp called Egypt. And God came and liberated them. And you think, you think coming out of Dachau or Auschwitz or Majdanek, someone said, huh, what a beautiful day, or I wish it was 10 degrees cooler or 10 degrees warmer. It was the last thing they noticed. Who is thinking about some insignificant factor when you're experiencing the greatest miracle? Why did, the, why did the Torah emphasize? God says, wait, stop! Before we go further, notice the weather. Isn't it a beautiful day? Because what God was saying was, throughout our lives, He says, stop! Notice the weather. Stop! Notice the... Notice the everything around you. Notice the everything around you. My, one of my daughters at her bat mitzvah, I don't remember which one, said this to our Torah about the bracha, she'akol niyabidvaro. She'akol niyabidvaro. So I understand, mizonos, you say, mizonos, you're eating mizonos, and you're saying a bracha relevant to the mizonos. Hamotzi lechem in arts, eating bread, you say a bracha relevant to the bread that's coming from the ground. And you eat uh, fruit, you say, bari it comes from the tree. And you eat a vegetable, bari it comes from the ground. And when you have a delicious cup of Dunkin' Donuts coffee, which you desperately need that morning, you say she'akol. That everything was created with his word. Why don't I reference the coffee, the water? Every other bracha is specific to what you're making the bracha on. And shahakol is this, you know, free generic bracha. So I'm sure you all remember what she said at her bar mitzvah. I'll repeat it for you anyway. Said, she said that, you know, you go to a restaurant. You pay for two things in the restaurant. You pay for the food. And sometimes there's a premium you're paying. If you eat in Manhattan, I think you're... I'm not a big fan of this, but if you go out to eat anywhere in Manhattan, you're paying like double, triple what you'd pay for that same steak or whatever it is that you're eating elsewhere. What are you paying for? The atmosphere. What's it called? The, uh, the ambiance. The ambiance. There's a surcharge for the... Um, no, the ambiance is not worth often what the surcharge that you're charging is. Where's the atmosphere? You got dressed up, you went to Manhattan, you, you're, the ambiance, the atmosphere, the ambiance. There's a surcharge, you pay a premium for the ambiance. So I forgot who she quoted, who says, Shahako, you're making a bracha not just on the coffee. 
Shakol, the whole ambiance, God. I'm drinking this coffee, but you know why I could drink this coffee and the sweat's not pouring out of me? Because you invented something called air conditioning. And it's cool in here, it's pleasant in here, it's wonderful in here. And you know, to make the coffee, there was a car that picked up the coffee. And there's lights right now, so I can see how many splendid I added to the coffee. And there's a whole ambiance that Shakol Nyebidvaro, it's not just the coffee. So the most insignificant things we make a bracha on, or we think insignificant, water and coffee and the basics, I make a shahakol, because I'm not just making a bracha on that substance. I'm making a bracha on the whole ambience that God created. So this is a paradigm for how to live life, says Rabbi Biederman. That Hashem says, Hayom aviv. Right, they're about to march out, they're liberated. And imagine the American army liberating them out, says to the prisoners who've just been liberated as they're marching out from this horrific, horrific nightmare of 210 years, says, stop one second. Look around. Isn't it a beautiful day? For 210 years, you could never notice the blue sky. You never heard the birds chirp. You never saw the flowers bloom. Stop. Take it all in. Chodesh Aviv. Isn't it a magnificent day? That, too, is not a coincidence. And, and the fact that you've been taken out is the hand of God. And the fact that he took you out and he provided this ambiance is the hand of God. And we, even when we're grateful for the details of our lives, we forget to be grateful for the ambiance. We forget to zoom out the lens and look at the big picture. And sometimes the steak stinks, but you know the ambiance was still great. And so you pay the check, and you're still hungry. Or more often than not, the steak didn't stink, but the steak was the size of a dime. <laughs> so $90 for a dime. You cut it in half, so you got whatever. And, uh, but you know what? You still say, but why did you go back to that restaurant again? The ambiance. ambiance. The atmosphere. Sometimes the steak stinks in life. Sometimes we get dealt a bad hand, served a bad dish. But you know what? The ambiance. Don't forget to still take in the ambiance. The ambiance of our lives. There's nothing that's changed. If this detail was also, God says, oh, when I'm designing it, you know what? Let's, I'm going to take them out in the spring. It'll be perfect. That detail. He didn't forget one detail. One detail. So the miracle reveals the teva. There is a puppeteer. There is a master who is directing and guiding a choreographer who is guiding absolutely everything that is, everything that is happening. So that's, uh, that's our mission. That is what we are, that's what we're experiencing. And I'll just, I'll just say as a postscript to what I was telling you before, tapping into the energy of the day does not work on your English birthday or your English anniversary. We're Jews. We have a Jewish calendar. We have a Jewish identity. I'll make a shameless plug now for the Shabbos Hagadol Drasha, which, please God, will be finished in time for Shabbos. But the topic is recovering our identity in an age of identity theft and identity confusion and an identity crisis. Yeah. Recovering our identity. Because that's what Yitzhiya Mitzrayim was. It was giving us our Who are we? When you peel back the layers, who are we? What are we all about? Ivri Anochi. What does it mean to be a Jew? Who are we? I'll give you a little... Um, it's not a spoiler alert because it's not a spoiler. But there's a, there was an amazing New York Times article, which I'm quoting, that talks about the difference between saying, I'm Jewish and I'm a Jew. And it talks about why so many people call themselves or refer to things as Jewish and they, they struggle to say Jew. You understand the difference between the two? A Jew is my core identity. Jewish is, I do Jewish things, yeah. right? I'm Jewish, but am I a Jew? If I had to reduce to the drasha to that, it's that question. Am I a Jew or am I Jewish? No, Who am I? 
Right, what, what is my identity? Who am I? So part of that identity, what we're going to be speaking about, are the three things, possibly four, but it's, these midrashim have been combined into this one, that there are three things for which we earned redemption, that we were saved in Egypt. We were on the verge of assimilation of disappearing, and we were preserved because we kept our names, we kept our language, and we kept our clothing. We kept our identity. So one of the things to be included in that list is to keep our count, to know our... You know, I'm not going to embarrass anyone here, and, but how many, how many people, how many Torah-observant, God-fearing Jews even know their Hebrew birthday? Even know it, let alone observe it. So everyone knows it's a shtick in my family. They're not fond of it because they say we live in America and we live in this world and an English birthday and I, and they all think it's a ploy for me to be able to observe multiple birthdays for myself, which is not true. I tell them, you don't have to keep, I tell them, you don't have to keep either birthday, but if you're going to keep one, on the second night of, of Hanukkah, that's my birthday, that's when I want to, our anniversary is, uh, is our Chafiyar, it's our Hebrew anniversary. That's when I want to observe it. So I can't emphasize, this is one of my hang-ups and pet peeves, is and instill it within your children. Their English birthday, that's what they fill out the SATs. English birthday, that's when they have to fill out a form what they put down. But their identity, and their birth certificate, but their identity, who they are, when they want to revisit point on the calendar that reaffirms their very existence and their mission and why they're here and that God thinks that they're worthy of living in this world, that's not done on some English date based on the death of Jesus. That's done on, not a Gregorian calendar, that is done on our Hebrew Yiddish calendar. One should have an awareness of what, what, how many Jews, I mean, Nisan is kind of an easy one, but how many Jews know what month we're in? How many what know where we are in the Hebrew month? They know the secular date, do they know the Hebrew date? How many know their own Hebrew dates? It's a really, really important thing to try to bring back and forging our Jewish identity, literally identity theft, you know, to, to know your identity. If you, if you met someone and they didn't know their own birthday, what would you think of them? <laughs> not highly, not very highly. <laughs> So, this is, so which is our real identity? If you know your Gregorian birthday and you don't know your Jewish one, who's the real you? Which identity do you really... All right, I'm going to give you the whole... Joke. Well, I'll stop it. Anyway, have a great day. Um, next week, next Wednesday is Erev, Erev, Erev Pesach. Have a good week. We're taking off. Okay, see everyone on the other side.